This is where we stopped last week on the question of God's sovereignty and our responsibility as a mystery. Um, We know that God is sovereign over our study of Scripture, over human affairs in this sense. We know that God created moral beings who know the difference between good and evil, right? Any, Any specific text that may help us understand that and not come to the belief that humans are like, remember what we talked about, machines, right? Like robots, molecular robots. Any, anything in scripture that jumps out that we do know the difference between good and evil, even in our fallen state? The passage we talked about last week, I guess Moses is addressing the people in the today, and before you, or give them a set before you life and death, therefore choose life. Yeah. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, Moses saying, right, choose this. I remember, it's been a while since we've discussed this. I think it is the book of Romans, for us to get any biblical worldview, I think the book of Romans is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, from the first chapter, it explains, right, that all the attributes, verse 18, the the invisible attributes of God are visible, right? But then, remember what sinful people did? They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. So they know, right, people know that there's such things as good and, and evil. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in just a second. But number, point number two, we know that God is sovereign in the sense that he always, uh, his purposes always trump evil human purposes so that we have a chance through repentance and humble obedience to align our lives with God's will as revealed through his word. Now right here, there's usually a question, right? There's usually some type of, uh, of question. If you want to go in your Bibles to Psalm 2, we're going to jump into that here in just a sec. Some people say, now Jeff, are you really saying that people, right, throughout, throughout our, our study, right, Joseph's brothers, they intended evil against him, Okay. But Joseph said that God intended good. And we looked at Hophni and Phinehas. That's Eli's sons to where God had given them chances to repent, but they didn't. All sorts of, remember Samson, right? Go get her for me. But it says that God was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. So we always see this human purpose in the Bible, but then the sovereignty of God, which is over that. So some people may say, are you really saying that God's purposes always trump evil human purposes? Because just like our discussion in prayer time, there are some people who have some plans for the U.S., for just the world, for their families, for their victims that are bad. Okay, Psalm 2 is where we're going to camp. All right, let's try to jump through this here. Psalm chapter 2, uh, and notice, if you've if you if you've got a pen or a pencil, I'll just encourage you to note the verbs in Psalm 2. It's really interesting um, in verses, let's see here, 1, 2, and 3 how active evil people are in trying to overthrow God and how, I guess we could say, settled God is there beginning in verse 4. So here's verse number 1. The question is, why do the nations rage? King James says, why do the heathens rage and the people's plot in vain, right? So they're raging against God, they're plotting against God. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is psalmish language for people who are saying, let's live our lives without God, right? Let's throw off God. Let's take him, you know, like Karl Marx, okay? The state would replace God. Remember the the German 
Frederick Nietzsche who said that God is dead, right? The original God is dead guy. Well, God, you guys seen his shirt? It says that Nietzsche is dead, God, right? Like, it's the reverse. Now, notice in verse 4 how settled God is in comparison to all this action. He who, what? What's the verb? Sits in the heavens, laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So right here you see, as opposed to evil people doing everything they can to try to overthrow God, God is sitting in the heavens, which is symbolic of God is in control. Then he laughs at all of their action, and then he speaks in his speech terrifies them, right? That's going to be the judgment day, which every bad thing that people who have rejected God have feared will come to reality. Um, Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, and the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So this is, this is the psalmist inspired writing saying, this is how you're supposed to, uh, I guess we could say, um, have a relationship with the one who's really in control. Verse 11, once again, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who what? Take refuge in him. Now here's where a lot of people in our day and time will read Psalm 2 and be like, man, it seems like God is like really got a bad attitude, right? Like he's really angry and he's, he's just, you know, he's terrorizing. It's like God's some type of a cosmic terrorist. But that is in contrast with, it's contrasted with these people who are doing everything they can to destroy God's plan. But notice the last phrase of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. How can you take refuge in someone who has no grace? If God had no grace, then there would be no way that we could take refuge in God. God would be judge, period. Now here's a question. We've gone over this a lot. Um, If God gave the world nothing but justice, no mercy, would God still be God? Yeah. Because that's what the world deserves. But even in Psalm 2, where it speaks of people who are trying to, I guess we could say, undercut God's plan. Not only does God undercut their plan to undercut God's plan, but God gives them mercy. In a sense, it's like God's giving mercy to those who have committed treason. That's Psalm 2. God is so much in control You can't alter his plan. You can't crack it. You can't crack the code. No evil person. I just just think about this. Um, There's a man I used to go fishing with in Louisiana. His name was Odell Barrett. And that was back in the mid-90s, and he was 67 then. And he said that he remembers as a kid during World War II that the Baptist church that he went to in Mississippi, they had prayer meetings every night. World War II. Every night. Imagine what the people were up against in World War II. There's a, I think I've told about this on Sunday. Ed Aiken, a, a Marine that I know, he's in his 80s now, Greenville, South Carolina. He was one of the first Marines to go fight the Japanese in the Pacific. And you know what they gave him? This is before they had mass-produced um, Tommy guns or the M1 carbines. He had a bolt-action rifle. 
No sidearm. Here's an 18-year-old kid from South Carolina, and he gets sent into the jungle with Japanese, with booby traps, with machine gun entrapments, with all sorts of cover. And here's your bolt-action rifle. If you ever shot a real bolt-action rifle, it kicks, it's heavy, and you can't carry a lot of ammo in it. Think about Hitler, right? Pretty much the best equipped army in the world at that point. He had already taken Europe up to the beaches of France. Germany was barely hanging on. I mean, don't you think that during that time, some people maybe looked at Psalm 2 and they're thinking about the sovereignty of God? I mean, I've thought about that before. Like, what if I were, if I were alive then? They're thinking about the sovereignty of God and they're thinking about Hitler taking over civilization, Europe thinking about the Japanese taking over from the east, moving westward, and then this axis of evil is going to meet in the middle, and that leaves basically the west, right? North America, Central America, South America, England would fall, and we'd be all by ourselves. Hawaii would be overrun, and what do we do? After a while, the Germans and the Japanese would amass enough power, enough slave labor, they would come and by force take us over, and then what happens when the Germans and the Japanese are in control? You get mind-washed, you get brainwashed, and your kids end up, after a couple of generations, thinking that it's good to kill Jews. And then if they win, all the Jews die. But there's a lot in the Bible that says the Jews are going to survive until Jesus comes again. So really, if we would have been alive then, and we would have been thinking biblically, we could have very well come to places to where we doubted, right? I mean, what would you think? What do you think? Who would think if we were in that situation? It's kind of like our Sunday series, right? Well, I'm not going to preach that tonight. But that's one of the things that often when we come to the Word of God and we see these things and these realities, that He's in control. And by the way, for our, our time, this is the Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, I think I'm saying that right, I don't know, if I'm not, whatever, chapter of the Bible, that even though people may claim, right, we're going to destroy God's people, we're going to destroy God's promise, it's not going to happen. God's going to take care of his people. So I just want us to, you know, everything that we do, and we're going to cover some more stuff, just come back to, a, to Psalm 2, because it basically says that nobody can rock God's world. But in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So, um, number three, we know that God is sovereign in the sense that God sovereignly orders the events of one's life where we can respond in obedience or disobedience. Huge. And we're going to talk about the freedom issue and all that in just a second. But a lot of times I think that we give ourselves, like we look at the, the other week, we maybe give ourselves too much credit because how many of us chose the time in which we were born? Our gender, our family, our birth order the culture into which we were born, the time that we were born. But all of that, and I hope that, and I'm trying to you know, act on this and, and communicate this as best as I can, that in every situation that God has placed people in, every person who's been born in every place throughout history, there's always been the light, okay, like the light of the conscience or the light of God's word, and the people can follow it or they can reject it, right? Just like Romans chapter 1. That's what it says, that even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So number four here, uh, God cannot be charged with making people do evil because every person has the knowledge of God. Romans 1, and of right and wrong. 
Okay, so here's, here's the question. Once again, people say, well, what about the people who have lived and died in these cultures and they've never heard the gospel? Okay? And some of us, we, we've, we've talked about that and just conversations. And I think the scripture teaches um, that, I think David Platt made this point in the book Radical, that the innocent guy who lives and dies in the jungles of South America or Africa, the innocent guy who does that and never hears about Jesus will go to heaven. What's the problem with that statement? The innocent guy who lives in... Yeah, innocent guy. That's the way it's always phrased, right? What about the innocent person? Well, in fact, go with me really quickly. I'm not sure if we have this in in the slides, but go with me to um, Romans chapter 2. We've hit on this different times, but I think it would be really good to have a little reminder. Romans chapter 2, verse number 14, is probably the best verse in the Bible that... 15, 16, and 17 for people who have those questions. Here's something too. People who ask those questions often, it's a legitimate question, right? Because here's the thing. That's legit, you know, because it's almost like if God's punishing people for something they've never heard, that's not, I just make a statement, that's not really just, okay? You can't punish someone for something that they don't know. But scripture, as it says, um, God punishes for people People for sins they commit, not necessarily for something they've never heard. Verse 14, for the Gentiles who do not have the law, and we see law, think of Revelation, God's word, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Here's the kicker, verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written where? Bingo. On their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. So that is the key. Uh, When we see here, every person, even if they've never had the gospel, they've got the law of God written on their hearts. And the Bible tells us that every single person has sinned. So that's why every single person needs Jesus. But even if a person has not heard the gospel, they will still be accountable to God for that amount of, I guess we could say, truth or, or light or revelation that God has given them through a missionary or just through their conscience and, and their heart. Um, but all of that, and some people say, well, that's really hard. I'm not sure what I think about that. I hope this is helpful. Sometimes things like that are difficult to figure out, right? I mean, it's just kind of tough. I think it would be good if we just view the mysteries through God's clear actions. Okay? For example, we know that God is good. God is love. We know that God is just. God punished sin. Bless you. That was powerful, man. That was, that was good. Yeah. Felt the blast over here. Um, yeah, we, we, we know that God is good. We know that he is just. And we know that he cares. God sent Jesus to redeem the world. So if I know that about the big picture then the issue, like what about those who have never heard, I can say, I know that God is taking care of all of the big stuff. I know that he's good. I know he's holy. So I can trust him to deal with those things. See, I think that makes it a lot easier because a lot of people, they come, they begin to doubt because they don't really know who God is. If we know who he is and that he's good and he's loving, but he's just, he's holy, I can trust him to work out those types of details. I mean, don't y'all think, that'd be a reasonable position to take. Uh, We just went through, it was in the outline, so we just went through Romans chapter 2. So here's the question of freedom, okay? This is what uh, this whole discussion comes down to. You say, okay, we're talking about choosing God 
um, following God. What does the Bible actually say about that? Here's three verses um, that we're going to look at. Number one, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The next phrase. Why don't, why don't people naturally accept the things like the gospel? Because they're what? Yeah, they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now with that concept of the gospel is spiritually discerned, let's come over here to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 4, and 5, and it talks about the Spirit. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay. But then the Bible, those, all those verses we looked at week before last, say things like, whoever will, right, call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But these verses seem to say that there's nobody who wants to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Now, are those two a contradiction? I don't think so. Remember that verse, and it's, uh, we don't have it in the outline, but it's John chapter 6, verse 46, I believe. Um, it says that no man can come unto the Son unless he be drawn by the Father. And remember that, that other verse, and it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? The word. the word of God. Now, the beginning, the word of God, according to the verse that we just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the whole thing, the things of the Spirit of God, the gospel, the Bible, they're what? I mean, they're, they're folly, they're foolishness. So often when the word of God is for, it's first confronted, it's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. It's like, why would I want Jesus? My life is my own, right? I'm a good guy. I'm a good person, all, all that stuff. The way the Bible says that it works is that the word of God is preached, okay? Remember the book of James, the seed takes root. God has to draw the person to be saved. And people say, well, does that, does that mean that we, that we can't, that we can't trust God if God doesn't, or if we can't get saved if God doesn't draw us? Well, it's not that the Bible is saying that, but what, what do you think this is saying? Just these verses, like we'd be here all night long. Has an issue of the will, desire. It's our nature. And I'm not going to follow God. It's our nature to see what we want. Right. Yeah, it's it's the issue of our nature. It's it's like nobody wants God, right? Like this one here. No one seeks after God. A lot of times, that, that verse is not mentioned in church. Because everybody wants to, to think that the heart is naturally good, but according to Romans, it's not. So how does all that work together? Well, this once again, I, I'm trying to be very, very, very open and honest because there are godly people who come down on, on all sides of this. There's some people who say, um, like, in, like an Arminian, okay? like a Wesleyan, or um, I guess we could say like a free will Baptist or uh, Methodist. People of that persuasion would say, that there is still some type of light inside. We're not totally dead. We're kind of wounded. And uh, so we could, just based upon whenever the person decides, to choose God. 
Then there's some people on the other end that we call like a hard, hard Calvinist or hardcore Calvinist that would say it's just God. It just kind of hits um, whenever God decides to do it and God just changes the person. And as one guy described it, God will bring them kicking and screaming uh, the, whole, the whole way. Um, this is a mystery that I still, as your pastor, I have not fully been able to understand. All right? But here's what I do know. I do know that naturally none of us want God. I think that's pretty clear from Scripture. Once again, we're not, de- we're not dealing with the, the, the ability, right? Like the ability to choose God. That's a separate issue. Talking about our desire. Our desire is naturally selfish. I also know that the Bible says that unless God does a work, I'm never going to have any desire for him at all other than to serve myself. All right? So if I don't want God, and if God's got to be the one who draws me to himself, then it kind of sounds like it's just something that happens out of thin air. Remember those verses that I didn't include in this, but I should have, but we're going to talk about anyway, about faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Book of Romans, that whole thing, how shall they hear without a preacher? The way, and this is going to come at the, the end of this, and I'll, I hope we don't run out of time again, but uh, the way that God often does the work of saving people is he uses people, us, who are obedient to what he told us to do. Great commission, go into all the world and do what? Preach, the, yeah. Preach it, make disciples, share the word. And when we share the word, it is God who does the work. But the work that God does, he uses us in the process. See, but how all of that specifically shakes down um, a lot of times, I'm going to be very, because I remember that verse in the book of James that teachers will be judged more strictly. I know godly, brilliant people who come down all uh, across the spectrum. As long as we understand that God at least knows the right, God knows the future. God is in order of the future and so forth. Um, at least that's, that's the best way that I understand it at this point. It is God who has to draw the person. If God doesn't do that, the person will never have a desire for anything. It's God, right, in Ephesians 2, who does the work of regeneration. But what God uses to bring about the change is the seed. And the seed is spread by people who are obedient to God. So in that sense, we're not saying that it's just up to somebody's goodness of heart. Whenever you get that desire to be good and you know, change your life, they'll never have that desire unless God does a work. Or we're not going over here on this end. We'll say, well, it's just all God. So I'm going to sit back. Whoever will be saved will be saved, right? Okay, sirrah, sirrah, all right? It's a fatalism. You know, if God's going to save them, then God's going to save them. So I'm just going to, I'm never going to, you know, give to missions. I'm never going to share the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches, obviously. So what do you guys think? Any, any comments? By the way, this is the biggest, what we're talking about, the biggest issue, all of theology, all of philosophy, history of Christian church. And we've tried to break it down in about like seven minutes. So I agree with you. I mean, nobody, I mean, they say the way God's destroyed America. You know, sinner, you know, you want to, you're, we are greedy. Uh-huh. We want to do our own thing. So mm-hmm. I agree. I, don't, I, I think it's in us naturally not to go that way, but God mm-hmm. does call us. Yeah. So much of Good this point. Is, is
it's tied up in, and it's so helpful to me on this very issue. So much of what you just said is tied up in it. And I come back to this a lot, but the studying the meaning of the of the Greek word agape for God's love hmm. is all tied up in this because um, unlike philia, which is based on liking stuff about somebody, agape involves a direction of the will, God hmm. choosing to be for us. Hmm. And I was shocked to find that it's not only the word that's used for God's love of us, it's also the only word that's ever used in scripture for the love God accepts from us. Hmm. That was shocking to me because I thought we can't love like that. And yeah. we can't. We have to appropriate that from God. Hmm. But the fact that that's the Good. love God accepts Good. from us tells us a couple of things relevant to this. That love is based on the direction of the will, so it does hmm. involve choice yeah. on our part. There has to be a, a, a direction of the will. And it tells us that we have to, it requires a work of God hmm. to do it. Uh, we have to appropriate that from God to give mm-hmm. it. So I, I thought that was very helpful and useful to understand because it both um, eliminates the, the idea that there's not, you know, that we're just robots, that there's not any, mm-hmm. any direction of the will involved, and it enforces the idea that we're completely dependent on God. Mm-hmm. Both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good word, good word. Um, something, too, I've gotten to talk to people before. They say, now, Jeff, if we tell people that unless God draws them, unless God's convicting them of sin. You remember when you got saved? That period before you got saved, it was kind of like what you knew way back in the back room of your mind and conscience kind of all came to the forefront. And it was like this crushing weight of sin. I remember it. I remember it for two solid weeks just a, the crushing sense of my sin. Saying, all right, if we tell people that God's got to do a work and draw them to be saved, which is what the scripture says, and my view has changed on this the last couple of years. It's like, okay, well, if that says it, I got to understand what that means. Doesn't that mean that we're saying, like, it's just, it's just God, God's going to, no, no. What it means, if we tell people, well, whenever you're good and ready to get saved, you go ahead and do that. Just out of the, the goodness of the changingness of your own heart and your own will, which is maybe mangled a little bit by sin, but you're still able to, you know, push the Jesus button. This, this says that'll never happen. But something, too, it's a lie to tell people that if they put Jesus on their calendar, I think I'm going to get saved next June. That's not the way it works. It's a very, very powerful thing when we share the gospel to tell them, when you have the conviction of sin, when you know that the Lord is drawing you, when you know that you need Jesus, you need to repent then. Because here's the question. If God kind of backs away from you and says, okay, well, if you don't want me, I'm just going to give you what you want. Which that's what happened to Pharaoh, right? From our discussion last week, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It wasn't like God showed up and there's this really nice guy and God's like, I'm going to harden your heart. God simply gave him more of what he had already committed To want, which is to be a tyrant. We tell people it is a serious thing, don't put off the Lord. Which that ties back into the old school, right? When we used to have a lot of revivals where evangelists would say, you don't know when your last day is going to be. It's the same thing. So not only do we not know when we're going to die, but we don't know how long God's going to give us the the drawing to, to, to draw to be saved. Because once again, according to Scripture, outside of that, it's not an issue of the will. It's not that we can't. It's that we don't want to. 
So it's a very, very, very powerful thing to, to draw people and help them understand the seriousness of, of being saved. And the question that I, I talk with people too is said, okay, let's say that, um, number one, if God never sent Jesus, would God still be God? He would still be just. He's not required to bail out criminals, all right? But he did send Jesus. But then... If God, let's say God just really begins to work on a person for for six months. I mean, they can't eat, drink, or sleep without thinking that they need to get saved. And then God says, you know what? You've rejected me for six solid months. Every second of every day, you've put your fist in the air and said, God, I reject you. If God simply pulled back and allowed the person to stay as the person wanted to be, would God be unjust? No. Right. And so once again, I think it's very helpful for us to understand, help people understand that if God just gives you, you know, a year or two of a really strong conviction, really, I mean, a moving of the conscience and the, where the will is just turned all around and, you know, knowing that they need to be saved, that's mercy, right? I mean, one minute of conviction is far more than, um, than any of us ever, ever would, would want, but... Um, or ever, whatever need. And I think that we are almost out of time here. Let me, uh, here's, here's what Miller Erickson says about freedom. He says, freedom is freedom from constraint or external compulsion, right? Like being bullied. Uh, it is freedom from unwilling action. This is freedom to act consistently with who one is. It is freedom to act as one chooses and to choose uh, as one um, wishes. So here's the question. We'll end with this. Is it possible to be truly free? This is always the follow-up question, Okay. According to the gospel, yes, Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is Paul talking about going back to the law, but that's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is, is Christ is here to make us truly free. Throughout Scripture, New Testament, if we are unregenerate, if we're still in our sins, we are not truly free. Why? All through, slave of sin, right? Remember Paul? I was a slave of sin. I was a slave of sin. I was a bond slave to sin. But then remember when it changes around and Paul says, I am now a bond slave of Christ. True freedom comes through the gospel. So if we could break this down a little bit further, the gospel is what causes a person to be truly free, right? Free to love God, free to love other people, free to actually reject the things that are ultimately going to tear them down. So um, that's that's that. Um, three three more. We're gonna we're gonna knock this out. God's sovereignty has effect on the, how we view the future. Um, one position here would be Eastern philosophy. A lot of people, as we talked Ben the other week, a lot of uh, especially Hinduism, Buddhism, they believe the world is cyclical. That there's not really any type of progression, any linear progression. Like we're not really going anywhere. And if that's the case, God is not sovereign. This is kind of like. Um, and that's, by the way, that's uh, samsara. It's the Hindu wheel of existence. In the middle, it's kind of like hell. And you just try to, each life, do a little bit better. Make sure your karma is a little bit more than the last. You can somehow just progress to be a better life form. And then eventually, you're just dissolved. Right? Like the 50-gallon drum of paint being mixed up. You're like a little drop of a distinct color. Eventually, you lose who you are. So that's the goal. Amen? That gives hope, doesn't it? All right. 
Now here's where it hits home for America. We've got our doomsday clock here. God's sovereignty and its effect on how we view the future. Western philosophy, uh, history, uh, and the future is doomed. Okay? How many people do you think if we took a survey of in the Western world would say that history is going to turn out really good? Who are not believers? And you say we're either going to pollute the earth where we can't live on it, we're going to nuke each other so we're all dead, and we're going to have to go you know, colonize the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there's really, there's really no hope. But um, here is a Richard Dawkins' statement on suffering, which gives that position perfectly. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. Let's stop right here. Imagine those people you know in your family that have suffered things like cancer, suffering of all sorts. This is the view if God does not exist. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect, if there is at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That gives hope. And finally, here's our position, and we'll close on this. We're going to have to look at the Richard Warren video next week, but how God's sovereignty affects our view of the future that's the best non-cheesy rapture picture I could find on Google. So it's just a lot of them were kind of strange that Jesus is coming again. Biblical eschatology, eschatology is end time stuff. Jesus is coming again. And that may sound a little bit preachy, but the fact that God is in control of the future. Because if he wasn't, we'd have to say Jesus may come again. But since God is in control of the future, we say with certainty, right? Like the book of Revelation, he is coming again. He is coming again. Prophecy is not an if, it's a when issue, and it's a certainty. So the fact that God is sovereign means that we have hope for the future, right? Even if crazy things happen and prayer is removed from the local level or whatever happens, we know that Jesus is coming again. If we die before he comes, we have the glorious hope of the resurrection. When he's going to raise us again, give us bodies that don't wear out, we're going to be reunited with everyone who has ever loved and followed the Lord, everyone who he's ever saved, and it's going to be unending bliss. It's not going to be some lame place where we're going to be playing harps um, with really scratchy um, types of clothing, you know, some strange-looking choir robe. It's going to be with Jesus for all eternity. So the fact, this is very practical, the fact that we believe that God is sovereign should affect us most when everything hits the fan and life begins to go really, really bad. Because we know that he's coming again and we know that he's in control. So I hope that this, um, and we'll, 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 once again, this is our fourth week on this, but we'll look at the Richard Wormbrandt video next week and hold this thought until uh, then. But thank y'all. I love you. And uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, we ask that you would help us to continue to have a reliance upon your sovereignty, but also to act responsibly, to be obedient, and to understand that you use us, that you use our obedience, and that it is our job to preach the word, and it is your job to um, make the seed grow. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.